Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. On sentencing day, right, or, or I guess the day where I was going to see if I was going to be considered guilty or whatever, the judge looked me in my face and he says, in my 30 years, this is going to be the first time I'm not putting someone in jail for a felony robbery, but I don't have to put you in jail because your life is over. Your life is over. Everything you've worked for up until this point is now null and void. Hi, friends, and welcome back to another exciting episode of At the End of the Tunnel. So this week, I'm interviewing Robert Glover, also known as Bricks Fitness. I first discovered Bricks on YouTube when I somehow stumbled across a video that he created, which was like this mini documentary narrated by him and featuring all of these really interesting clips showing his weight loss journey. And it really got my attention because he's so transparent about where he came from and how he transformed his body. And it definitely was not an overnight process. At his heaviest, Bricks was close to 370 pounds. And he tried every fad diet under the sun, but kept falling off the wagon as people do. And then after one of his best friends died from an obesity-related health issue... Bricks decided that it was time to get control of his weight once and for all, and he went on a mission to lose more than 140 pounds. So we're going to talk about his story and how he found the motivation to stick with it long enough to actually compete in a fitness competition. That's right. He was on stage with ripped up fitness professionals and he competed and he went from barely being able to see his own feet to having a six pack. So we're going to talk about how all of that happened and how he eventually became a health and fitness YouTuber with over a half million subscribers to his channel, where he pumps out tons of free content to help other people who are looking to gain control over their weight. One note, there is some adult language in this conversation, and Briggs often refers to himself as fat. But ultimately, this is not a conversation about body shaming or making anybody feel bad for being heavy. It's about his own experience, and if you listen with an open mind, I think you may find that what he has to say about his body transformation can really apply to any sort of physical, emotional, or even spiritual transformation where you have to get to a point where you say, you know what, enough is enough, and you have to take different steps to find your way out. I think you're going to love Bricks' story, so without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Mr. Robert Bricks Glover. So Bricks, thanks for coming on to the podcast. As always, I like to start my conversations off by talking about childhood. So when you think back to to little Bricks <laughs> growing up in uh in Brownsville, New York, 
and or Germany. I know there's a little story behind that. What was your favorite toy or activity back in those days? My favorite toy was probably my big wheel, if you mm-hmm. want to consider that a toy, right? Yeah. Slash mode of transportation up and down the, 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 the block. Or my Transformers. What did you like about Transformers? You know, manipulating the toys and uh, kind of putting things together. From what I remember, that was the appeal of Transformers for me. Did you ever do like a Transformer Halloween cosplay? Were you that deep into it? Or I did, but <laughs> the but, movies? We, but but I made it with constru- but I made it with construction paper and staplers. Yeah, and, sta- and staples. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I got I got photos of that. Have you seen that? Um, There's like an Instagram video of this kid who has a Transformers Halloween thing on. His like dad pushes him. It's like a car. And then he like stands up and you just. You never yeah, I've seen saw. that. Yeah. That's cool, right? Yeah, so that, that was you. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> that was me right there. <laughs> What's the story with Brownsville in Germany? I think I was about two or three years old. My dad, if I'm reciting the story correctly. My dad and my mom was, you know, having an issue and he decided to take me. Uh, he was in the in the army at the time. So he was stationed in Germany and I lived with my dad for four years in Germany uh, until I was about six or seven years old around that time. So that's how I ended up in Germany. But and then I moved back to New York City, to Brownsville. When I, I guess my dad told me I started asking for my mom. So uh, he he shipped me back on a plane by myself, six years old. That's a pretty stark contrast going from Germany to Brownsville. It was a total culture shock for me. And I remember because I didn't speak much much English. You spoke time. German. Yeah, I spoke. I was fluent German. I didn't speak English at all. Wow. Yeah. So I came home, uh, you know, to New York with my mom and she was with my stepdad who, you know, that was a interesting scenario that I that I inherited. You know, once I moved back to Brooklyn with my mom. So what was that like learning English as a five-year-old black yeah, yeah. kid in Brownsville? <laughs> it was, it was, and it's, it's crazy because I, I, I remember pretty vividly having the communication barrier between, you know, my family and, and the people at school, but it, I picked it up pretty fast. Like I remember it, it didn't set me back too far in school. So, you know, it, it, I must have picked it up quick enough to not have to do a grade over. That must have uh, resulted in some loneliness, I can imagine. Yeah, I, I don't remember any like, re- you know, very clear memories around that, but I can, I can imagine that it would. How would you define your childhood? And I don't mean as adult bricks looking back to the five or six year old, but maybe like the 10 year old bricks. Like what, what was your relationship with childhood in that, at that period of time? I just remember seeing a lot of people in pain. I remember like my family, we all lived together. So there was about three families in my two bedroom apartment, mm-hmm. you know, so, so I was very close with my cousins. There was a lot of things that I, in retrospect, I didn't understand what was happening, but there was things that I was seeing that I felt like I shouldn't be seeing for sure. But if we're talking about from the perspective of maybe 10 or 11 year old, Breaks. I just knew that it wasn't normal. You know, my life wasn't normal. I was very aware of that early. Were you experiencing any mental health issues back then that early? Yeah, I do. I remember having night tears as a kid. I remember experiencing 
these like deep feelings of guilt. I, I guess that's the best way to describe it. I know I felt a lot of guilt and shame as a kid. Don't know mm-hmm. why. I can't really I can't really speak on why or where that came from. But I, that's a very distinct memory I, I have. Did you have a lot of friends? Not really. I mean, I, I grew up with my cousins around. And I, I have two siblings. So I guess those were my friends. There was a few people that, you know, lived on my block that we played on the street together. I wouldn't say I had a lot of friends, but there were there were a few people. And Brownsville is considered the hood, right? Like that is that is as the, hood as it gets. Hoods. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. What's it known for? What like is it? Were there any hip hop references to Brownsville? Oh, yeah. So so MOP mm-hmm. was a was an iconic rap group from Brownsville, Brooklyn. Um, that's there's a helter skelter. There's a lot of you know underground rappers that you probably a lot of people would know about. But yeah, MOP was the biggest artist that was connected to my hood. They had that song called Annie Up. It was like a robbery anthem. <laughs> right. Robbery. <laughs> Speaking of which, I read that you may or may not have dabbled in some gang activity as a kid. Was that happening yeah. around that time? That was culture, man. That was culture mm-hmm. in my hood. So yeah, definitely got caught up in that as a teenager. Mm-hmm. And when I grew up in the South, I remember we used to eat mainly to get full or because something tasted good. And that was it. That was all the consideration, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm curious what your relationship with food was at that time growing up. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork. And you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. So if it took more than 12 minutes to make it, I never experienced it. <laughs> okay. That's, that's a good way to, you know, kind of sum it up, you know. Boxed, um, microwave, boxed, all that. And rice Chef Boyardee, ramen noodles. That was mm-hmm. pretty much all we ate in fried chicken. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if my mom, you know, got her check, 
she would probably make some baked macaroni and cheese sometime. But for the most part, it was the, you know, the high sodium quick foods in the box in the can. Mm-hmm. Processed. Yeah, that's all I knew. What were your sort of life aspirations at that time? Because you mean, I mean, you may not have remembered it, but you were essentially a citizen of the world. Like you've been outside of Brownsville. You've been to Europe. You you experienced international air travel and all of that. I'm sure. So you had more of that than the kids in your neighborhood. Yeah. What were you thinking about where you were going in life or what were the possibilities were when you were a kid? I wanted to be a vet. Mm. That was my first dream. I was um, very into pets in general, not just dogs, but especially dogs. I was a dog person very early in life. But as a kid, I had a snake. I had lizards, Mm. hamsters, fish. Your mom was okay with all that? Well, I had that with my dad. Okay. And then... Yeah, I, I, my mom let me. My, my, eventually, we we adopted a, a dog. I remember that, and yeah, we had hamsters with my mom. So yeah, yeah, she did let us have pets. Had an iguana. Assuming you went to high school and you did all that stuff, did you get into sports? Yeah, I played. I played some uh, varsity basketball. The school that I went to, our football team, we had a one-hour commute to get to the practice field, mm-hmm. so I, I wasn't with it. <laughs> no, I'll pass. But because originally the first high school I went to, I went there because I wanted to play fo- football. Like I, I got kicked out on the mm-hmm. first day. And uh, ended up going to a different school that the, the football culture was was not. See, football is not really big in New York City anyway. So I ended up playing two years of varsity basketball. What'd you get kicked out for? I always had a baby face, and I've always been a really nice, calm-natured person. And in the hood, that's looked at as weakness. Mm-hmm. So first day of school, somebody pretty much tested me. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I had to make a statement very early. It was it's, it's like jail. It's like you feel like mm-hmm. you're in jail. Like I felt like I had to make a statement. So I, you know, I broke homie's jaw and I got kicked out of school. Was that your first fight? No. So you've been practicing <laughs> making yeah, statements I, and I, yeah, I'm a you knew the rules. For sure. For mm-hmm. sure. I wasn't a troublemaker. I wasn't a bully. But if it came across my table, I, I handled it. At that time in your life, did you have a, a mentor or someone who was kind of in your corner who was trying to kind of guide you along a, a righteous path at that time? Or or was it mostly like gang influences and things like that? Yeah, no, the, um, the male figures in my life, that wasn't their agenda for me. Mm-hmm. Just that. Yeah. Any female, like older people who kind of saw the potential in you and said, hey, Bricks, you know, take this path? My grandmother tried to encourage me to stay out of the streets. Mm-hmm. She was probably the only person, if anybody fits that description, it would be my grandmother. And you eventually went to North, Norfolk State? Yep. yep. Why Norfolk State? My kid's mom and I, we, we were dating since high school. Mm-hmm. And I was a year older than her. When I graduated, I went to school down in Florida. That's a long story. That didn't work <laughs> out. <laughs> Where, where'd you go? I went to a community college in Tampa. Okay. Yeah. And so, and I was staying with my dad who, this was the first time he and I 
had basically reconnected for the mm-hmm. most part. It was probably a good six or seven years since we, you know, we, we connected up into that point. So I moved down to Florida. I was living with my stepmom. He was, he was hardly there because my dad was a travel nurse at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, that situation went south pretty quick. Yeah. A power struggle situation. Yeah. Yeah. My stepmom didn't really, can I, can I cuss on this? Yeah. 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 No, nah, my, my stepmom didn't really fuck with me like that at mm-hmm. all. And she wanted me out of there. It was, she, it, there was some, some things that went down. Mm-hmm. She wanted, she, she made sure I got out, I, I got out of there. During this time, were you self-financing your education or did you have a scholarship or like how, how does that play out with your decisions that you were making to go to this place and go to that other place? I was working a part-time job. At the time, I was still kind of in the streets. So I had, you know, little hustles going on. But a little pharmaceutical yeah. salesman type thing? Yeah, yeah. That type of deal. It, because that's, that's, that was all I knew. I tried to do the, the McDonald's thing. <laughs> When I was 17, that lasted for a few weeks. And then I ended up getting a job at, at um, I was doing UPS customer service down there in, in Tampa. So I eventually let it go. But it all, it all the, the bottom fell on that situation before uh, I can really kind of find the straight and narrow. So why Norfolk State? So it was um, my kid's mom. She was, she went to a high school that specialized in in health profession. So she graduated with her LPN and Norfolk State was a school that was on her list for the RN program. That's the, the school's notorious for their registered nurse program. So, and I also wanted to find something that was not as far as Florida, but still away from New York City. Mm-hmm. So I applied when she applied. A few, of, a few of my friends from my block, we all applied together. And then it was probably about seven of us. We just packed up a, you know, a rental van and just moved into the dorms. Did you have kids at that point? No, 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 no. Not sure. Okay. So college is where you kind of picked up a lot of weight. Yes. For sure. What, what was going on there? So that was the culture. I don't know if this was just an HBCU thing, but, mm-hmm. you know, the freshman 15 for most was the freshman 50. Mm-hmm. Um, this was the first time in my life that I had access to unlimited food. Mm-hmm. Like, the amount of food was always like my mom, when she bought a box of cereal, she would put it in individual Ziploc bags and keep them in her room and she would ration them out. Like that's okay. the lifestyle I lived my entire life. I had to ask her to have more than two eggs, like scarcity mindset to say the least. And it wasn't so much a a financial thing towards you know the end of my childhood. When I was a teenager, you know, we we weren't you know super poor like we were when when, when I was a kid. But anyway, um, so this was my first time having access to unlimited food, and I didn't know much about nutrition. I didn't know how calories worked. So um, yeah, I started. You know, I put on a lot of weight that first year in college. Were you were you uh, fit before all of that? Did I you was, have a good body image and everything before that? I, I'd never considered myself fit. I wasn't obese. But I was always what you call big bone, right? Whatever that means. Mm-hmm. I, I've always been a, a, a husky kid, mm-hmm. a, a, a thick husky kid. But I was athletic, and, you know, and I played, like I said, I played varsity basketball, but I was never what you would call fit. You would, you would never look at me and say, hey, that guy's fit. How much weight are we talking? So freshman year, I gained 
Well, that first semester, I probably gained about 40 pounds. One semester. Okay. Yeah, easily. Uh, and then I was having issues with financial aid. I couldn't come back to school that following semester. So I went back home to New York. But yeah, that first semester, I definitely gained at least 40 pounds. Did you recognize that something had happened or did you just feel like that was just I you getting older? In retrospect, I remember having to buy a pant size up and I was like, what the heck is going on? I, I don't I don't remember it showing up on the mirror in the mirror at this point. The whole weight thing didn't really hit me until one day my mom came down to visit. I was working at Best Buy at the time. I'll never forget. And her jaw dropped when she see me. Her jaw dropped. And she's like, you are not my son. That's what she said to me. This is not my son. And I'm like, what the hell is she talking about? In the middle of Best Buy, she wanted to have that conversation. Yeah, walked walked in, I'm on the clock. And she's like- You're happy to see her? Yeah. I hadn't seen her in probably two years. Wow. And she's like, you're not my son. But at this point, I was fat, fat. And I don't know how it happened- but that was the moment that I realized that, holy shit, I really put on 150 pounds at the ice cream. So how much do you weigh total at this point? Right now? No, no, no. Back then in Best Buy. I would get, a, I would get an error message anytime I got on a scale. So, <laughs> And I know that scale went up to at least 350. So I don't even know. Honestly, I say my heaviest is 360, but I, I probably pushed 370, to be honest. I, I have some photos where I think I was <laughs> almost, you know. 370. And then what happened after that conversation? Did anything shift? No. No. I got mad at her. I was, you know, in my feelings because I'm like, mom, what what are you talking about? So, yeah, no. I guess a seed was planted because that's the first time I realized that I was fat, which is strange because it's so obvious that I was fat. I was (laughs) fat. (laughs) But I don't know. It was just my life was so stressful. Mm -hmm. I'm taking 18 credit hours. I'm working. So you were back in school at that point. Yeah, I was in school. Yeah. And you were paying it all yourself. Yes. Well, I was going in debt, obviously. Mm-hmm. I wasn't paying anything out of pocket at the time. But yeah, yeah. I had a very stressful life. School, my, you know, my daughter was born in 06. So I had a newborn around this time. Because I think that's the reason why my mom came down to see my daughter right after she was born. So you were still with your high school sweetheart? Yes. Had you guys gotten married at that point? Yes. We, we okay. got married because we, we had to in order to get insurance because her mom recent her mom's insurance recently kicked her off and we needed to have a she needed to have a change of status at her job in order to qualify for health insurance because we, initially we were paying for the visits out of pocket, the prenatal, the prenatal visits. And we, we weren't able to do that for the whole entire time. So we got So the Best Buy insurance? No, no, no. Her insurance. So she was um working as an LPN. Okay. Yeah. So the uh the hospital insurance needed her to have a, a change of status in order for her to qualify for health insurance. And what was your mental state like at that point? You're now a new dad, you're fat to your own admission, mm-hmm. your mom called you out. You're married, living with your high school sweetheart. How was your mental state? Like when you think back to the, waking up those mornings and going to bed at night, like what were you, how were you feeling about yourself and about life? I remember being depressed a lot, but I've always been 
an optimistic, upbeat person. Mm-hmm. So I hid a lot of my pain. I didn't let the world see it. And I, I just remember feeling like a robot and just very unfulfilled. And food was my escape from reality because I just didn't like my life. The, my relationship, I wasn't secure in my relationship because she was, you know, a very pretty, petite woman who had been with me you know, prior to me putting on all this weight. So of course that created a lot of complexes and yeah, I just was, you know, I, I wasn't secure. So mm-hmm. that pretty sure, I'm pretty sure put a lot of weight on our relationship. And she, 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 cause she's an amazing human. I don't know how she did it to be honest. Like, I don't know how she dealt with me all those years to this day, man. I give her a lot of credit for how she navigated the entire situation. Did you develop any? tactics or coping mechanisms to hide the weight that obviously wasn't hiding the weight, but you thought in your head, it's like, if I wear a big shirt, then it's going to hide my whatever. I think, you know, less, less about physically trying to hide it, but just more overcompensating in other areas to make me feel light or Mm -hmm. important. You know, I'm from New York city. So by nature, we're like really flashy people from from the, from my hood at least that's that's how we that's how we did it so i wore a lot of jewelry i made sure that you know my my car had 20 inch rims on it at the time which was you know a big deal i did a lot of a lot of externals yeah um, a lot of yeah a lot of that validation stuff yeah yeah and mm-hmm. um honestly I wanted to. I wanted my clothes to be small as possible because I felt extra fat when I wore big clothes. So I wanted. I needed little jeans. That's that was the wave at the at the time. The the, the, the baggy jeans had went out of style. So now my jeans fit. You know, it was now when I look back at those photos, I can't believe I wore those jeans, man. But Where would you shop? How would you find clothes? It was tough. I've always kind of been a good bargain shopper. I would find back then, I think was Plato's Closets around Plato's Closet. It was like a second hand. I would find designer jeans. Big enough to fit you for 370 yeah, so pounds. There were certain brands, right? There were certain brands, you know, a few brands, but for the most part, I wore a lot of polo because that's that's the only thing that you know, the only brand that made four X's, you know, mm-hmm. their jeans up into the forty sixes. So I was the polo guy for the most part. Almost by default, like you had to, had to, <laughs> had to do polo. I, I had to, you know. Yeah, that's awesome. Your wife never said anything about it. No, she never. She never made me feel like the fat ass that I was, bro. And, and not that you know, I can't remember any, her ever saying anything. But on top of the weight, she also made a hell of a lot more money than me. Mm-hmm. So that was something else that made me feel very insecure. I remember that bothering me a lot. And I mean, I I think over time being with someone who was just irresponsible, who didn't take care of himself, didn't have any pride about his appearance. I mean, I did have pride about my parents, but as far as my health, the way I took care of myself, eventually I'm pretty sure that's what led to her kind of um, stepping into a more masculine role in our, in our relationship. Mm -hmm. That of course, you know, I felt demasculated because I wasn't behaving like a man who should be respected, should should behave. 
and that on top of the insecurities, on top of the health issues, on top of the mommy issues and the other mental health stuff that I was dealing with, the depression and anxiety. It was a formula for disaster. And that's why, you know, like I said, I give her a lot of credit because never once did she make me feel how I was feeling about myself. She never said anything to me to um, make me feel bad at all. Like, not that I can remember. You said somewhere that you had never had a salad up until around this time. I was 30 years old when I ate my first salad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 30 years old. Yeah. Around, around 30, right before my 30th birthday. So talk a little bit about getting in trouble with the law. Okay. So I, I just graduated and I had a really, I had, um, landed a really good job mm-hmm. and I was making the most money legally that I've ever made in my life. And you weren't doing any of those other extracurricular no, I, I had activities at that point. Completely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I completely. One morning I had a photo shoot because at the time I was, I was a music artist. I had a single on the radio I had opened up for Kendrick Lamar. I did a few dates with Meek Mill. So like this was, I thought was going to be my thing. But anyway, so I, I had a photo shoot that day and the Jordan Cement Fours, which was a very popular shoe at the time, was being released and I had to have them. So we were, I'm online with the, with a gentleman. We we're online for four hours. We exchanged pretty much our whole life stories. We get to the front of the line. He's first, I'm second in line. The Foot Locker worker comes outside. He says, hey, the next person in line who wears a size 13 can buy the shoe. This guy, wears, he wears a size nine. I already mm-hmm. know that. Like, mm-hmm. like I said, we exchange life stories. So he walks in the store and I'm like, I, kinda, I, I called him by his name. I'm like, bro, like, what are you doing? And he kind of just like ignored me and he bought the shoes. And... I'm not justifying myself, you know, I'm <laughs> Your not size 13, excuse, but yeah, that was my size and I'm real big on integrity. I'm real big on code, right? There's yeah. a culture in the, in, in the sneaker game and you don't, yeah. you just don't violate certain rules. He was obviously trying to resell the shoes mm-hmm. and it was a very clear that he, he, he violated. And mm-hmm. again, what, how I handled the situation was wrong, like, but he came out the store and I just took the shoes from him. You know, I was upset. I reacted. I felt disrespected. So I just, I took the shoes and a few days later I was. You Did know, you pay I, him for the shoes? I, I would have if I had cash because I had my debit card. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something I always, I, oh, that's a part of the story. Whenever I tell that story, if I have cash in my pocket in that moment, I'm throwing the cash on the floor. It wasn't about robbing this dude. Like, right. I had plenty of money, right? But it, it wasn't about that at all. But yeah, so so I, you know, I made that terrible decision to take the shoes from the dude, and the Foot Locker got the whole thing on camera. And yeah, a few days later, I get a call. Hey, bro, I see you on the news. The police are looking for you. I'm like, what? At the at the moment when when they said that, I had no clue why. Like, why are the police looking for me? And then it hit me like, oh shit. Yeah. So when you stole when you got the shoes, the guy just kind of stood there shocked. That somebody just took the shoes out of yeah, his arm so, and you just yes. kind of walked away or did you run away or what? No, I didn't do? run. I walked away. 
right? Because before, because I, I knew I was going to do it. I told the girl who, who was with me at the time, I'm like, yo, go start the car. When he, when he went inside, I'm like, yo, because I already knew I was about to take him. Um, so it's premeditated. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. For sure. I, I walked away. He, he tried to follow us. And I told her to, to pull over because I'm like, why are you, why are you following? What are you going to do? I got out the car and kind of walked up to him like, what's up? And Brownsville he, style. Yeah, facts. That, that, that's because I'm like, why are you following me? Yeah, so we got back in the car and, and drove off. And then a few days later, I got the call from him. Yo, bro, you're on the news. I'm like, oh, shit. So he's the one that pursued the charges? The guy? Yes. Okay. Yes. And off the record, once we get off the record, I'll, t- I'll, I'll tell you the wildest connection <laughs> about who this dude <laughs> ends up being. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Okay. Yeah. So you're looking at what, five to 10? Yeah. So on I'm a felony facing, charge? Uh, yep. Five to 10 felony robbery. That's and, crazy for a pair of shoes. Yeah, bro. They're gonna, was, they give, they're handing out guys five to 10 years yeah. in prison. Yeah, if, if, or a if, pair if, of shoes. If the item is worth one hundred and fifty dollars or more, or something like that, I think that's that was the threshold. And then, yeah, it's it's considered felony robbery. That's crazy. Yeah, just bro. throw somebody's life away five five years in a cage. Yep. Wow. You obviously didn't know that at the time. No, 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 no. So the case it took about seven months for the whole situation to be. But so I went to court on sentencing day. Right. Or, or I guess the day where I was going to see if I was going to be considered guilty or whatever. The judge looked me in my face and he says, in my 30 years, this is going to be the first time I'm not putting someone in jail for a felony robbery. But I don't have to put you in jail because your life is over. Your life is over. Everything you've worked for up until this point is now null and void. What did he mean by that? He, he's saying that, you know, me being a black man with a felony, he told me I threw my degree away. He said, you just threw your degree away. You'll never be able to get a job. I don't need to put you in jail. Your life is over. He, he, he looked me in my face and told me that. Like, and I, Was he a black judge, white nah, judge? I was an old white judge. Old white judge. And those words haunted me for a very long time. Hmm. For a very Did long you have a lawyer? Time. I had a court. A court appointed lawyer. I couldn't afford a lawyer. Man, you're lucky. I know, bro. 90% of the people in jail had a court appointed lawyer or no lawyer at all. Yeah. And he was kind of trash, but um, I don't even know how. I mean, I had a, it was my first offense. I had a degree. I had mm. a really good job up until that point. So I had a lot going for myself that worked mm. in my favor. So I, you know, I guess they figured just giving me the felony was was enough. Okay, I want to do a quick pause because I saw a video of you doing a self confessional mm-hmm. before you went into court and then after mm-hmm. you went into court. Yeah. When did that start? When did you start doing these confessional videos? Would it was it tied to your Best Buy stint where you no. got into gadgets or what, how did that even start back then? So, uh, like I told you, I was I was in I was doing music at the time. Yeah. So, I was you know, doing like a video journal for, I don't know why I was doing a video journal, but I have tons of these like video journal entries where I'm talking about just random things in my life. I, I, and like, I don't know what inspired me to do that. I've always been a person that, that documented things. Like I loved documenting. I, I loved capturing memories and moments. 
but yeah, so I, I don't know exactly why I was recording that, but I, when did you I'm start did. doing it? Do you remember? So did someone I'm, give you a camcorder at one point in your life and you're like, oh, let me use this? Yeah. So my grandfather, damn, you're making me think about this. I've, I've never connected these two. My grandfather would record us a lot and he always had whatever latest camcorder that was out. And I was always intrigued by it. So I would always, you know, kind of make home movies. When the Blair Witch Project came out, I kind of yeah. a little Blair Witch yeah. situation. So I guess, I, you know, I, I was vlogging pretty much all my life and I didn't even know it. Uh, like I said, I just liked capturing moments and memories. What would you do with it? It would just sit on the hard drive. You know, sometimes I would look at it, but for the most part, I didn't. You know, and you just, kept these little tapes and uh, these little mini HD tapes or whatever in little yeah. boxes somewhere? Yep. Yep. That, that's what it was back then. You're right. This was before everything went digital. But yeah, I would mm-hmm. just keep them in a, in a shoebox. Yep. But that video that you're talking about, it was on my webcam, right? It, mm. it was on my webcam on my computer. Yeah. So I, I've always kind of just been into, you know, documenting what was going on in my life. Mm. Very valuable stuff now for me. Yeah, I mean, well, it plays a role in what happened later. That's why I'm bringing it up now, um, just to see what the genesis was behind that. Because it's not usual for someone to do that, especially around court, you know, a situation where you're looking at possibly going to, going away for a long time. Because yeah. if you were convicted, you would have been taken to jail right away, I'm yep. assuming. Yep. So that could have, I mean, and that, that, was a that was a pivotal day. My, I almost shit myself in that court. Like, because I didn't know if I was going to walk out of that courtroom that day. Was your whole family there in the in the pews? No. <laughs> the girl I was dating at the time was there. And then I had a really close friend by the name of Shantae, who I'm really close with still to this day, who was at the court with me. And that was it. You had the kid at that time, right? Yep. Both of them. I remember having to call my kid's mom about this situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, yeah. That, yeah. I had both my kids at the time. Did anybody understand your perspective or they all thought you were just being a knucklehead when you did that? I think most people, because I wasn't a bully, like, and I wasn't mm-hmm. a thief. And people know that about me. They also know that I, I don't tolerate disrespect. So mm-hmm. nobody thought I was being a knucklehead. They, they, no one agreed, everyone agreed that I made a bad decision. But once I explained to them what happened, they're all like, okay, yeah, yeah, that's something you would do. So did that experience of getting the probation, how, how did it shift your perspective on things? I felt like I had a, another chance. I had another chance. Yes, in the back of my mind, the felony thing was going to be an issue. And I remember leaving the courtroom feeling light, right? Excuse the pun. Just, I felt like, okay, yeah, like, let's, it's time to change some things up. And I have videos from around that time where I spoke about my realization, you know, the, my realizations of, of having to evolve, like having to grow as a, as a man, ha- having to do better. Um, and I was very aware of that. Like, and this was kind of the rug being snatched from my feet, from underneath my foot and me hitting my head on the concrete hard as hell and saying, okay, you got to live different now. And then something happened to a friend of yours. Was that soon before that or after that? It was probably a few months afterwards. I don't remember. Okay. I think I got, so 
I got convicted the in October and he passed away in January. He was a close friend. I couldn't believe it, man. I, I couldn't believe it. He was in his late twenties and it tore me up. So he passed away from, from lifestyle induced uh, medical conditions. You know, he had high blood pressure. He had diabetes, sleep apnea. And yeah, he just kind of passed away in his sleep. He had a young kid at the time. Mm. Yeah, it was tough. What happened on March 1st, 2013? Man, I woke up that morning and something just felt different. Something clicked. It's one of those things that's beyond language trying to explain what that morning was like for me. I knew that my life would never be the same after that morning. I made a decision to be a different person. I kind of took on a new identity in that, in that moment. So you're 346 pounds that morning. Are you still with your wife at that time? No, 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 no. no. So me and my wife, we divorced maybe two years before. Mm -hmm. Estranged or friendly or what? We made it work for the kids. You know, Mm -hmm. we weren't friends, um, but she was extremely patient with me. Mm -hmm. Extremely patient with me. She handled the whole situation like a G. She's a G, bro, to this day. Such an amazing human. So when you woke up, you were by yourself. Yeah, yeah, because I had had just kicked my girlfriend out. (laughs) That's another story. So yeah, I was single. I was in. I was living in in an apartment. I had two roommates. What was your job at the time? I didn't have a job. That's because of the felony. Yeah, so I kind of started hustling again, which is another big part of uh, of of the story. Because I, I reached a point in my life where I felt a calling to sacrifice every shortcut, every one. I had to give it up. I felt. Oh man, and that that story gets kind of deep, man, because a lot of my close friends they're they're in jail to this day. Mm-hmm. And had I not made that decision when I made it, that would have been my fate for sure. And you didn't have a car either at the time. No, my car was I had a my car was jacked up, so it's just it was out of commission. I was still making payments on it, but it was mm-hmm. it wasn't working. It hadn't been working for months. So what you do? March 1st, it's going to be, this is it. It's going to be a new life. What's the first step? The first step for me, because I I had already figured at this point, the best place to invest my energy into trying to make my life better would be to lose weight. Mm -hmm. Right? Why? Why lose weight? That's just what I've strategized in my head. You know, okay, at the time I'm still thinking about pursuing music. I wanted to be more confident. I wanted to be more marketable. Mm-hmm. I also didn't want to be depressed anymore. So it just felt like the, that the first domino that if I just tip this one over, everything else would pretty much get better. And like, that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. Had anyone mentioned that to you before? Like any of your mentors, maybe in the music industry, say, hey, Bricks, if you just lose a little weight, man, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had, you know, people on my team that would tell me that all the time, particularly the women that was involved in the movement. 
Mm-hmm. Like breaks, man. Like you make a lot of music about the ladies and you kind of got this appeal. If you lost some weight, man, you'd be unstoppable. You know? And you were like, well, Biggie Smalls is the biggest rapper. <laughs> yeah, but nah, but I, I always wanted to lose weight. I struggled with, with, you know, I've always been on some sort of weight loss kick for pretty got much it. the entire time. You know, So I'm you were the fat waist lo- weight loss guy. Yeah, exactly. I w- I've oh, always doing- trying some diet. You know, I was I was doing... The Adkin. I was always doing something and it was always short-lived. So I, I wanted to lose weight. I wasn't the fat guy that was embracing it. Right. Because I remember I wasn't fat all my life. You know, mm-hmm. it was, this was something that was new to me. So I definitely didn't want to be fat anymore. Had you connected diet with exercise at that point in your life? Yes. Only because I think it was the South Beach Diet book. I had mm-hmm. it in my house. Don't know where it came from. I wouldn't have bought it and none of my roommates would have bought it. I have no clue where that book came from, but that was the book that was in my home when I decided to lose weight. And I, I, I pretty much understood that that uh, diet was the biggest piece in weight loss. Mm-hmm. I don't relate to a lot of people who say, hey, you know, I, all I thought was, you know, if I worked out and pretty much eat whatever I wanted, I would lose weight. I never, I never understood that. Um, so yeah, yeah, I understood that that nutrition was the was the biggest piece. At that time, you know, you're 300 something pounds. Let's say you weren't at home, right? And bricks now, 2020 bricks walked into your apartment. What are some of the signs that the person who lives in that apartment is on the plus side of 300 pounds? I mean, obviously, what was in my cupboard, you know, like what would you see? A lot of Oreos, um, <laughs> a lot of ice cream, a lot of fucking cereal. That was, and I pretty Coke, much, pop, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I drink, I drink a lot of soda. I drink a lot of fucking Hennessy, bro. I used to drink a lot of alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was always bottles in the crib, empty bottles, full bottles. <laughs> and then, you know, I was, I was kind of a junky person too which is a big part of my identity now. I'm like a super OCD neat freak. And that's mm-hmm. something that I've developed intentionally because I, re- I connected being messy to being fat. So you went to the kitchen and pantry, you threw all that stuff out day one or threw how did everything it out? I threw everything away, like everything. And my roommates were so annoyed with me, but I was, <laughs> I was a madman about this. Mm-hmm. I was obsessed to the umpteenth level, which in retrospect wasn't a good thing because I, I would hit the wall. It happened a few times because I, 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 altogether I lost 150, 160 pounds, but I gained back 60 pounds, maybe four times, five times. How did you know this time was going to be different though? When you started in March of 2013, how did you know that wasn't just going to be another fad time you're going to quit after a month? It was just a knowing, like, I wish I could give you more than that. I just, I knew that this time I wasn't going to quit. You know, prior to this morning, you know, I had some dark, dark, dark days where I contemplated taking my own life. Mm -hmm. And I knew that if I ever gave up on myself again, that that's where I would end up back at that place of not wanting to live anymore. So I had this fire that drove me because it was either this or death. 
you had a premonition as well about your future. I did. So very early in my weight loss journey, I didn't know at the time what purpose meant, right? But in retrospect, I just started feeling that this was why I was born, right? Everything I had gone through up until this point, it was all just making so much sense. And I was so confident in my ability to to take this weight loss thing, you know, to the finish line that I would start speaking about helping other people lose weight. Even before I was still you're still fat. Pounds. Yeah, I was still right. over 300 pounds. And, you know, I had this vision of, you know, sharing my story that hadn't happened yet to help other people get control of their bodies and, their, and of their lives. I and you would go to work and police people's diets as <laughs> yeah. a fat person. I was in post I Listen, <laughs> in retrospect, because I did, there's certain Instagram posts or Facebook posts that would pop up. And I was trying to encourage people and I would, I would almost judge people who, who ate <laughs> bad foods, man. But I was still a fat guy doing this. It's strange. It was strange. And when did you get your first tangible moment of success where you where whatever you were doing was, you saw that, Hey, I'm actually making progress here. Yeah. So the first about 70 pounds came off pretty quickly. So my body changed fast. So I'm talking What's quickly? A couple months? Six months. Okay. You know, so I'd lost maybe 70 pounds in the first 60, six months. So for the first month and a half, I was doing, I had a, a deal with a friend of mine because at the time I had a pretty decent social media following and he had just mm-hmm. opened up a gym. It was basically a storage unit where he had a few, um, some dumbbells and some, you know, mm-hmm. in there. So in exchange for him, you know, helping me with exercise, I would help promote his his gym. I was always in a group of at least four people, five people. And I got to the point where I just, I didn't want to do that anymore. You know, I didn't want to wait five minutes in between sets because three other people had to do their sets. So I, I eventually branched off on my own. But yeah, so for the first maybe six weeks, I worked with him. And you were so confident in your journey. In that time that you would literally take your shirt off and videotape fat bricks. And I, I call you that because you call yourself yeah, that. Yeah, so yeah. I'm not I'm not like making fun of you, but I know that's yeah. how you refer to your your old uh, body. Yeah, your alter ego, fat bricks. <laughs> you would video. I mean, that is bold stuff, man, because I, I barely will take my shirt off. And, you know, yeah. I'm not, I wouldn't be considered necessarily fat by any stretch. But like, what was that? What was the mentality? to, to you, you must have been so convicted in your mission. I was so sure of what I was going to achieve with my body that it was like, I was going to need proof that I used to be fat. It was, Mm -hmm. I was that sure of it. And I just wanted to document this, man, because I knew how powerful it would be to have the footage, to have the proof, you know, every step of the way, not just what I looked like, but what was going on with me mentally and, you know, some of the roadblocks, some of the victories. And and, um, I wanted to capture it all. And I was very intentional about it. I had a vision for a documentary very early in the game. So I just started, you know, recording, you know, Uh, I honestly wish I would have done it more, but 
I got some good stuff. I got some really good footage that it's so nostalgic to mm. look at that stuff. It never gets old. Okay, so you're working out on your own now. And what's that? You're going to the gym every day, six days a week. Six days. Yeah. I'm doing what? This is a, one example. And, and my life continues to unfold like this. I had moved into an apartment that I don't understand how I got approved for, right? Got approved mm-hmm. for apartment. I'm walking around the neighborhood, right? Maybe a few days after I move in. And I see that they're building a brand new YMCA walking distance from mm. my apartment when I didn't have a car. So this sort of like synchronicity, that's around the time that that began for me. And it never stopped to this day. But what's interesting about that is the old bricks probably wouldn't have even cared that they had a YMCA right next door. So you were, it's like you were open to it and you saw that it was there. Yeah. It just felt like purpose. Like Mm -hmm. this is supposed to be happening right now. Mm -hmm. I was supposed to get approved for this, this apartment that I was never supposed, that I didn't qualify for. I was supposed to. But you applied anyway. Why did you apply anyway? anyway? And what's what's so crazy? I, I remember the day I applied, I did a little video. Hey, I'm, I'm applying at this place. I'm probably not <laughs> going to get it. Like, I have all of this stuff. But I applied anyway. I mean, I needed a place to stay. I was, uh-huh. it was, I was taking some shots in the dark. And yeah. I was good at speaking to people. And the owner did the tour. Come to find out, the owner had already sold the property. And they were just trying to get some tenants in there. She wasn't going to have to deal with me. So she kind of just, you know, whoever seemed like a decent human being, here, you can have the place. Right. That's kind of how that happened. Serendipity. Yes. So then you basically lived in in the YMCA. That was your second home. That was my second home. Six days a week. You were the norm to their cheers. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So, and, and... there's some some of the employees that I you know I still keep in touch with to this day who remember watching my body change over that you know year mm-hmm. or so that I worked out there. So seventy pounds is pretty significant. I mean, you must have been so hyped Man, after that. You couldn't tell me shit. Right? <laughs> you couldn't tell me nothing. I, you know, I was on top of the world, man. I was fitting into clothes that I dreamed of wearing. And it was, man, it was, it was literally, literally a dream come true. I had a whole new body, even just after, you know, 70 pounds, I had a whole new body and, you know, this new confidence and it, man, it was everything. It was everything. If I can bottle that feeling up, man, and sell it, I'd be rich for sure. (laughs) Had you gotten your diet in check at that point or were you still working on that? Yeah, so so I had a very aggressive approach to dieting. I made a lot of mistakes w- with that. You know, I think I did some damage to my metabolism because I was under eating mm. for a, 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 a good period of my weight loss journey. I was under eating, which is why, you know, I kind of advise against that. I've made every mistake that you can possibly make with weight loss during my journey. And again, I was supposed to, because these are the experiences that I help guide other people with. You mentioned before that you would gain weight back. Was there a correlation between lifestyle and gaining weight back, or was that just a natural function of the process? I would. Or you could be weight. doing everything right and gaining weight back. 
No. So no. The reason why I would gain weight back is because I would I was so extreme with my approach that I would just get you know hit these points where I would say fuck it and I would just take two months off, three months off, and I would just binge. Mm. I would just binge. I would just you know I would stop working out and. Every single time, though, I found my foot in and, and I got back to it. So even then, when you were binging, you knew you were going to get back to it at some point and continue on. Yeah. It didn't feel like, you know, me quitting. I just, I would just like almost black out for a month or two <laughs> and then catch myself <laughs> and then get right back to it. How are you paying the bills during this process? In ways that I shouldn't have been. Okay. Yeah. Were you concerned about? potentially getting back in trouble with the law or anything like that. Cause you're on probation still. I'm yeah, I, I mean, light, man. I don't know who I thought I was, bro. I mean, I was 100% in survival mode and I was very comfortable mm-hmm. in survival mode. That's, that's the mode I lived most of my life in. And man, I, I moved, to, I moved to California on probation. I wasn't supposed to leave, leave the state. Mm-hmm. So I, I would do stuff like that. I don't know if I felt invis- in, invincible or I was just that stupid. But I always felt supported. I always felt guided. I, I, ne- I was never. I never was afraid to do these stupid things. But it's because it, you know I was supposed to learn these lessons. I was supposed to do exactly what I was doing at the time. I've met a couple of guys who one was a pharmaceutical salesman, mm-hmm. another one we would grow it, would manufacture it, and they would have very strict rules and they would say look if you follow these rules there's a it'd be, it's the chances of getting caught are minuscule to none did you have did you have rules or tactics not and we don't have to get into the specifics of them but i'm just curious if you had rules when you were doing what you had to do to pay the bills to make sure that you were being as conservative as possible so that you didn't ever have to have any kind of confrontations with the law. So that's the key. And the word conservative describes me perfectly. I wasn't the quote unquote hustler that was- You're not on the corner. No, no, I wasn't. I wasn't trying to, I was literally just at this point trying to take care of my kids and keep my phone on. So that was the minimum. And I don't know if I felt like that had some karmic value to it. But I wasn't hustling to be, you know, buying bottles. I was trying to just survive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I guess that's how I slept at night at this point. And you also went through an internal transformation as well. Can you talk a little bit about your mentality and um, forgiveness piece and all of that? Yeah. So very early in my weight loss journey, I felt a pivot from a pure weight loss journey to just a journey to being a better human being. And I knew having, you know, a healthy body was a big part of my ability to be just a good person. Like when you think of a good person, I wanted to be that. I wanted to be what the world would consider a good person. So I started reading at the time it was a, a, the law of attraction stuff like the first book was the secret and that opened up my mind you know i hadn't had never heard of anything like this and the thing that made me feel empowered 
was being able to sit and reflect on my life and connect certain thoughts or beliefs to the condition that I was manifesting, right? Every shitty situation that I found myself in, I I found I connected it to a thought or a belief. And yes, it stung, but it also made me feel empowered. Like, okay, well, if you could create this not so ideal life with your thoughts and your beliefs, then you can turn things around. And I adopted that intention very early in my weight loss journey. I love that. If you're the problem, then you're also the solution. Yes. <laughs> all right. So how long did it take you to get to get all those 140 pounds off? Three years. It would ultimately okay. take three years. I hovered around 250, 260 for, for most of that three-year period. That was kind of like my sticking point. That's where my body felt. I think that's where my body wanted to stay. So it took three years to get to my goal body. Is that when you did the fitness competition? Yes. So that was the that was the the finish line for me. When did you come up with that idea and how crazy did it seem to other people when you did you ever mention it to anyone? Yes. Yes. That was a goal that I set very early. So let's say March first was the day I decided to change my lifestyle. And this is just an estimate. So mm-hmm. let's say June. I said, you know what? One day I'm going to, I'm going to step on stage. That's my goal. All right. That's, I know I needed a target. You know, I needed a target to drive me and me competing in the fitness competition was that, was that finish line for me. So yeah, I set that intention very early and people thought I was crazy. I was very vocal about Mm -hmm. my goals, man. To this day, I'm so confident in the promises attached to my life, right? The vision. And I'm very vocal about it. And people would laugh at me. It, people, I had, a, I had a homeboy to this day. I remember having this conversation with him. I was still fat. And I told him like, yo, you know, the fitness industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. This can be my shit right here. <laughs> and he's laughing. He's like, Briggs, what are you talking about? You have a double chin. <laughs> you have a double chin. I'm like, yeah, I know, but this, this is going to be gone soon, right? Um, yeah. So I was very vocal about, about my goals. And, and, you know, I have friends who, who you know, who were support, supportive, but I don't know. A big part of the culture in New York City is, is, is jokes. So everybody mm-hmm. would, would joke me. I never really took it personal. But, no, you know, I don't think anyone really seen it like I did until they started seeing it. How did you feel when you, you came in, what, second or third or? So I didn't place because I, the class that I competed in, I wasn't supposed to compete in that class. I was supposed to, what I did was classic physique Mm -hmm. and I was the biggest dude there is you normally smaller dudes with little legs. Mm -hmm. I was supposed to do, it's a different, it's like right underneath bodybuilding. It's not physique. So you, you don't wear the long board shorts. You wear the the, the titans yeah. yeah yeah so i forgot the name of it but i i couldn't i couldn't place but the judge did give me like a really dope shout out because um, mm-hmm. you probably had the biggest transformation overall yeah yeah yeah. he acknowledged he acknowledged what i had achieved with my body mm-hmm. so that was a win i mean just jumping on i had no aspirations to to 
to place. I didn't want to, I didn't care about placing. Mm-hmm. I just stepping on that stage was the biggest win for me. Did you know anyone else in the world who was going on a similar journey at the same time as you or had done it before you and you kind of used them as a model for what you could do? I would see pictures online. I didn't, it's not like I had a, you know, a content. Creator. You didn't have a, a bricks no. in your life that you were modeling no. your journey. There was just a bunch of random photos that I would come across that I would hoard, that I would put as the backgrounds on, you know, on my laptop and on my mm-hmm. cell phone. But I didn't know these people. I didn't know how to reach them on social media or anything like that. There was just random pictures that I'd come across. So was that the impetus for you putting together your sort of mini documentary? Yeah, I wanted I wanted to show people this process in as much detail as I possibly could. So yeah, that was definitely the inspiration behind me documenting. Talk a little bit about that process. Did you have experience with putting together little mini films and all of that? No, no, just just what I would do on a, you know, personally for myself. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't have any experience at all. So I didn't know what I was doing at all. I just figured if I just gather enough footage, I can meet someone who would know what to do with it to put it together. And that's still in the making, you know, because I, I still want to do the documentary, man. Right. It's more of a trailer what you put together before. Yeah, yeah I put a trailer. I put a trailer together. Um, and me and the person I was working on the documentary with, because we started, I just felt like the story wasn't complete enough. So... Yeah, I'm just mm-hmm. continuing. It's gonna be once it does come together, though. Like it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna be big. And uh, you posted your first YouTube video, so you're probably the most natural fit for YouTube of anyone I've ever talked to mm. in these interviews. I mean, you already had a catalog yeah. of doing these same kinds of very open, transparent, vulnerable—the things that actually go viral on on a YouTube t- platform. You'd already been doing that for years. Yeah. And, and at the time, I didn't feel prepared, though. I didn't. For some reason, it's <laughs> uh, because it's a different it's different when you're making videos for yourself that right. you don't really have any plans for. This is just really for me. I had no intention of sharing any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, before I, of course, I, I came up with the idea to do the documentary, but all my personal video experience before then was 100 percent for me and my family. Mm-hmm. But the YouTube was a way to help other people, obviously. Yes. yes. That was the thing that was most exciting about it, especially when I was, you know, post videos and reading some of those comments. It felt so good. It felt so good. And it definitely was the fuel for me to keep going with YouTube because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I'd never operated an SLR. I'd never edited a video in my life. And I've been doing it all myself, honestly, up until a few months ago. You know, I've had a few people help me with a few videos, but 90% of my stuff was was done by me. Had you officially retired from the music thing at that point and you were going to commit yourself fully to the training and helping people? Yeah, yeah. So after I got in trouble with the law, I kind of just I gave up on music. So this was 100% what I was going to do in my life. This was my plan. What was the vision and where are you right now on the spectrum of that vision? Initially, it was, okay, I was going to be a personal trainer. So I got certified and I got an opportunity to work at the YMCA in Koreatown, which was my first you know, legit trainer job. But the hours sucked. 
I was away from my family at the time. This was before I moved back to Virginia. I was living in, in LA at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I moved back to Virginia, I was missing, you know, my son's basketball games. And it, it was, I'm like, all right, this can't be it. Like this is from 4 a.m. to 12 and then from three until eight every, this wasn't it. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to try to build an online coaching business. And I figured YouTube was a good way to, to help people. And then also, you know, build some clientele. So that's, that was another thing that, that um, inspired the YouTube journey. And now you're at uh, what, 600 something over 600,000 subscribers yeah. on YouTube. Yeah, we're about, I think we're about to hit 630. Yeah. yeah. What do you credit that to? God. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. Like, because I honestly, I didn't see this happening, bro. And I, I'm still kind of shocked at times. But I, you know, if I can, you know, um, answer that question differently, I just attribute it to just being honest and transparent and vulnerable and showing people that, you know, something that they're struggling with, it, you know, can be achieved. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's the biggest thing that draws people obviously is to see the transformation. Like they, you can't argue that you see it. It's, you know, I think that's the biggest thing. And then also just giving my heart in the content, people resonate with that. And you are so generous and prolific in how much information you share, not even just about your personal journey, but to help people in their own journey. And also a lot of the mistakes that you've made. And I'm sure you've gotten messages from a lot of other people who have had very successful transformations as well. Are there any that stand out in your mind? Any one reach out to you and say, hey, because of you. There's so many messages and emails that has literally left me in tears, man. It happens regularly. You know, when you start talking about people who were talking about taking their own lives and then they credit them not doing it to something that you created, right? A video Mm -hmm. or something that I shared. I couldn't begin to describe how good that feels. It means everything to me. So even in in those moments, those are the things that get me through some of the more challenging parts of what I do, because it's not easy to share this much of my life and to, (laughs) um, you know, do what I do. It's not easy. But, um, when I, when I get the feedback, when I hear these stories, when I hear about the impact, man, it's just, it makes it all worth it. And that, that's definitely understating it. Great. I just have a few wrap up questions. Number one is how would you articulate your mission as you see it, as you understand it right now? I guess because I always struggle with this a bit because it it changes based on what I learn about myself mm-hmm. and what I learn about the people who I was born to serve, right? 
So if I can put words together for it right now, it's to use what I've learned through the the most challenging parts of my life to serve as a light, right? Again, it's part in the pun. Serve as a light to give people hope, to show people what's possible when you make a decision to take control of of your life through your health. Looking back over the last, you know, year or so, how have you gotten in your own way? Trying to do everything by myself is one of the biggest ways I have stood in my own way. Have you corrected that a little bit or is it still? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've started to. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a process. It's definitely a process. <laughs> for sure. But I, I, I've hired some coaches who get on me about certain things and I'm just a heart first person. So I don't have mm-hmm. the best business practices sometimes because mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just feel covered. So I don't really worry much about logistics and business as much as I should. Mm-hmm. I don't have any fear attached to that. I'm a very intuitive decision maker. Right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes it doesn't make sense to other people, mm-hmm. but it always and it always turns out to be the right choice. And I'm very confident in in living like that. I love it. And that actually leads to the last question. How are you defining success these days? Ooh. Success to me is doing something that makes you feel fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Doing something that is bringing the vibrations of the universe up. Success is just serving people. Like my life feels like a dream, right? Mm-hmm. And just being able to say, like, I literally, if people ask me, yo, Bricks, how are you doing, man? I, I always, my response is I'm living the dream. And being able to say that is success. Well, especially having come from a place where you were having night terrors as a kid. And you don't have to be Sigmund Freud to make the connection between playing with Transformers as at sort of a preview of coming to it, of coming attractions in, in life, doing what you do today, which is you are one of the icons of what transformation can look like when somebody decides that enough is enough. And, you know, I heard someone call you a, a hope dealer. <laughs> you went from yeah. dope dealing to hope dealing. And now you're in a place where you're, you're leaving every person, every situation better than you found them. And I think that's, I just want to acknowledge your courage and your bravery over these years, your willingness to show up, your willingness to record yourself in these moments, these small little in-between moments that may have gone unnoticed otherwise. And now you have that rich footage to be able to weave into what you're doing now and show people contrast and context for what they're seeing because you know we live in this sort of mcdonald's society where we want everything to happen quickly Mm -hmm. and i think the world needs more people like you who can show people not just what is possible but where you came from and what that process 
really looks like. And I think that's one of the reasons that you are relatable. It's one of the reasons why I personally am inspired by you and your journey ever since I came across. I can't remember how I came across the video that you, the compilation of your journey, but uh, ever since I saw, I probably watched it 10 times in a row when I first saw it. Because, you know, if it's not weight, it's something else. Everybody's going through something. It could be emotional, it could be a spiritual transformation. And I feel like that video, and I'll, t- I'll link it obviously in the show notes, but it's a great portrayal of what that trajectory looks like for everybody. That, that dialogue that you include with it, the narration is something that I think we've all said to ourselves and we've all hoped for. And we all kind of know deep down that it's possible if we can just stick with it long enough. But you know, the forces of life are so strong that we get swept back into our old ways so easily. And just to see someone who's actually said, you know what, I'm going to keep swimming back in Mm -hmm. is so inspiring. So I just want to thank you for that. Even if you didn't do anything else in your entire life, I think that's enough of a gift to leave to humanity. So thank you for that. Thank you for those words. And uh, yeah, man, for for coming onto the podcast and sharing your story. I know some of these things are kind of hard to talk about and it sounds like a bit like a therapy session <laughs> sometimes yeah. but i'm just glad that you were open to it and game to it and so we'll obviously link to everything and i want to encourage everyone to definitely follow you on social media even if they don't have any intentions of transforming their body just seeing the stuff that you share could be a really great example of how someone can can share any journey in a way that inspires people and then hopefully you and i will get a chance to meet in person, cross paths one day when all this pandemic stuff is sorted out. I'm looking forward (laughs) to it. I'm looking forward to it. 100%. Thanks. Thanks so much, brother. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to my interview with Bricks. I hope you found it as inspiring as I did. And I also highly recommend checking out the video of his transformation, which is linked in the show notes, along with a transcript and everything else that we discussed. If you want to hear more stories like Brix's, please make sure you're subscribed to the podcast and check out the archive at lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. You'll find many other interviews with regular people who've overcome all kinds of crazy odds and obstacles to start their movement. And while you're there, make sure to sign up for my daily dose of inspiration email for short messages to help you get started in your day. And if there's a movement that you'd like to hear the backstory of, you know what? Text me. My cell is 323-405-9166. That's 323-405-9166. Just text me at that number with your idea. I know it's crazy to be giving out my number like that, and I probably won't be able to do a whole lot of back and forth with you But that's really the most direct way to reach me and let me know your thoughts about the podcast. And in the meantime, thanks again for listening. I'll see you next week with another inspiring conversation from the end of the tunnel. you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day.
You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.